Welcome to ASRM Today, a podcast that takes a deeper dive into the current topics in reproductive medicine. I'm Jeffrey Hayes. It's Medical Genetics Week, and on the show today, we're talking about translocation flagging from PGTA results. Joining us to discuss this is Dr. Alyssa Snyder, who is VP of Clinical Genetic Services with iGenomics and holds both a PhD in genetics and a master's degree with certification as a genetic counselor. Dr. Snyder, thanks for being with us today. Thanks so much for having me, Jeff. So what is it about medical genetics that helped influence you into being in the field? I would say that I'm your typical genetics nerd. It's what brought me into the field is a love for genetics. And I used to work in a genetics laboratory studying epigenetics and mouse pre-implantation development. And through that work, I got linked in with patients that were pursuing IVF treatment. So sort of branched off from the genetics research sphere into more of an applied medical genetics serving IVF patients. Now, we're here today to talk about translocation flagging from PGTA results. You recently co-authored an article published in FNS Reports titled, Criteria to Evaluate Patterns of Segmental and Complete Aneuploides in PGTA Results Suggestive of an Inherited Balanced Translocation or Inversion. For our listeners, what criteria issues had been identified to lead to this article? Yeah, so I do work at iGenomics, and I frequently speak with patients who receive their PGTA results, and we get questions from patients and physicians alike about what these aneuploidies are that they're seeing in the PGTA results, and sometimes we see patterns, and sometimes we see coincidental embryos with multiple aneuploidies that look similar, so where the question is, is this a pattern or is it random? And very rarely are there actually patterns. Most of the time, the aneuploidies that we see are random. For example, trisomy of chromosome 16 is a fairly common aneuploidy that we see in embryos. So if you have a patient with, let's say, six embryos and three of them have trisomy of chromosome 16, that's probably just random chance. Uh, But the question comes up, and so it's really helpful to have Um, some criteria to say, no, this is probably random. And then to say, actually, in this situation, it's not random. And when we say that it's not random, it usually involves what we call segmental aneuploidies or partial gains, partial loss of, of chromosomal material. And those segmental aneuploidies, if they come in a certain pattern, if the breakpoints are the same in multiple embryos, we would say that's usually not due to random chance and there probably is something else going on. So physicians and patients are aware that sometimes there are patterns and sometimes we do say, hmm, we think there's something more going on here. Most of the time, not. But we're trying to provide some guidance to healthcare providers, physicians, nurses, and patients alike to try and know when there might be something more to look at. And as a person who is still learning a lot about genetics and and what genetics contributes to uh, the study of infertility and and, and infertility sciences in general. When you talk about these patterns, how does this help contribute to identifying things like uh, Klinefelter syndrome or Down syndrome, you know, things things that are associated with syndromes? What is that role? Unrelated topic. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. genetic conditions like Down syndrome or Klinefelter are usually sporadic and not inherited. There's some exceptions to that, but generally speaking, we we see those as sporadic. So the kinds of genetic 
things that we're looking for when we see patterns are specifically chromosomal rearrangements, including reciprocal translocations, sometimes Robertsonian translocations, and inversions. Those are the ones that result in eggs or sperm with specific patterns of aneuploidy that can be seen in the PGTA results. Have you looked at ASRM member benefits lately? ASRM is consistently adding value for physicians and other professionals in the field of reproductive medicine. Boost your career with access to ASRM's cutting-edge journals, free continuing education credits, access to ASRM QBOOS, discounts on the annual Congress, and so much more. To learn more about the benefits of ASRM membership, visit www.asrm.org. If you would, could you talk a little bit about, because this was this was your first publication with FNS Reports? That's correct. FNS, for our listeners, if you don't know, and please go back and listen to our episode where I talked to the editor of uh, FNS Reports, uh, is the new open access journal by FNS. What was that process like in trying to get this particular article published? It was pretty exciting. Um, I'm relatively new to the ART sphere, but... You know, Fertility and Sterility has always been the most prestigious journal in our field. And to think that there was, a, you know, greater access to create a publication with this parent journal was really exciting. And to think about it being open access, I think, is a, a great of great value and a, and a wonderful resource to physicians and patients alike because they can find this on the internet just by Googling it. Um, so usually open access papers come with a fee, that, so the authors have to pay a lot of money to get your paper on open access. But because we submitted it in the first year of FNS reports, then they kindly waived that open access fee for us, which was pretty nice. And I would say, you know, I was a little surprised that the FNS reports was quarterly. So we submitted the paper fairly early on and, and then waited and waited and waited. And I was kind of hoping that the article would be published by Christmas, but it wasn't published until March. So that was the the official publication date. Probably could have known that if I had read <laughs> some, you know, instructions for the paper more. But other than that, I think it was a good process. And I'm pretty excited to have the opportunity to publish in the journal. What was the feedback process like? So when we submitted it to the reviewers, the the reviewers did have one primary concern that actually led us to change the title of the submission entirely. So we can um, kind of dive into to that now if it's okay. The The paper was really about looking at the PGTA results and saying, we really think there's a translocation here, or we really think that there's an inversion here. And so please karyotype the egg source and the sperm source, typically the patient and the partner, sometimes donors. And so the the reviewers thought that the original submission was a little too strong in our statement that we could predict a translocation in the egg and sperm source. So they said, you know, we still need to karyotype these patients. And so that was one of the big concerns that the reviewers had was that the readers of the publication would conclude that there was no longer a need to karyotype patients prior to doing their IVF cycle. And so we changed the whole title of the submission so that we could avoid those false conclusions. So in the paper, we say, you know, please physicians order uh, order karyotyping for your IVF patients according to the regular standards and criteria that were present before this paper came out. 
Um, but not every IVF patient is karyotyped prior to doing PGTA, and sometimes there isn't an indication for karyotyping. And it's really that subset of patients that we can really benefit by these criteria. So if they have a history of recurrent pregnancy loss, those are patients that ought to be karyotyped prior to doing IVF treatment. But if there's no other indication for karyotyping and they do PGTA, regular PGTA, sometimes we can still see these patterns. And Jeff, I also wanted to add that the patients that do karyotyping in advance and are found to be carriers of a translocation or an inversion, those patients would do a different test called PGTSR. So for the typical IVF patient who hasn't had karyotyping or who wasn't found to have any translocation or an inversion, they would do PGTA. And that's the group of patients that we're catching in our paper. This paper was developed during the pandemic. Did the pandemic in any way sort of cause complications? Not really. Uh, I think that most of the work was done prior to the pandemic. And in fact, the paper was largely drafted <laughs> prior to the pandemic. And I think the, the pandemic just gave me a little bit more breathing room to take a breath and say, you know what, I think I should submit this to FNS reports. <laughs> That final push, I think, was one of the most difficult parts of getting the, the work published. The ASRM would like to invite you to save the dates for the ASRM 2021 Scientific Congress and Expo to be held October 17th through the 20th in Baltimore, Maryland. The 2021 Congress and Expo will kick off with the ASRM President's Gala, followed by three full days of live, in-person plenaries, symposia, interactive sessions, roundtables, and a robust exhibit hall. At the conclusion of the live Congress, on-demand offerings of select sessions will become available through the end of December 2021. Registration opens soon, so look for an email from us in your inbox. I'm talking today with Dr. Alyssa Snyder. We're talking about translocation flagging from PGTA results. Dr. Snyder, is there a second publication that you'd, you'd like to touch on? You've written two that, that, that they've come out, or has both come out, or are they just... There is a second one in the same edition that the translocation flagging publication just came out in, and that one's entirely different and done in collaboration with two other genetic counselors, Lauren Isley and Lori Black, two of my good friends and, and most respected colleagues. And this was, again, entirely different, having nothing to do with genetic testing, but instead having more to do with um, the scope of practice of genetic counselors working in the field of IVF and ART. So there's a dynamic between the um, laboratory or the, the IVF centers that utilize the genetic counselors that are employed by a PGT laboratory or carrier screening laboratory and the IVF centers that have their own in-house genetic counselors. And we realized, we were recognizing as we communicated with each other that there wasn't a lot of understanding about scope of practice and that some genetic counselors were doing tasks that they, fought, that they felt might be outside of their scope of practice or that they weren't doing tasks that they felt were within their scope of practice. So that's another one. I'm happy to speak about that one as well, but again, just an entirely different topic. If you have a take-home message or messages to share about the article, what, what would they be? I think one of the take-home messages that we left the readers with, with the publication, was that these criteria are very helpful 
in the interpretation of the PGTA results and, and looking for patterns. But there's a, another piece to the puzzle, and that is the reproductive history of the patients that are doing PGT. Patient age is probably a big one, but there's other ones like history of pregnancy loss or a family member with a known translocation or an inversion. And the paper was submitted by authors working in the PGT laboratory. And so when PGTA is ordered, we often have limited information about the reproductive history of a patient. Mm -hmm. And so I would always want to encourage the clinician to take that into consideration when they're using these criteria. So the criteria that are proposed are from the laboratory and don't incorporate things like maternal age, which can play a role. So for example, when you're looking for Robertsonian translocations, we would expect to see aneuploidies of chromosomes 13 and 14, for example. Um, but if you have a, a patient who is of advanced maternal age and she's got a lot of other aneuploidies, including 13 and 14, that criteria is probably not as effective for that patient than it is for a much younger patient who has no other aneuploidies, that the only thing you're seeing is 13, 14. And because of lower age-related aneuploidy rates in younger patients, those aneuploidies become more surprising than they would be for an older patient. Um, you can't always see patterns in PGT embryos if you have a small cohort size. <laughs> so just to highlight that, if you only have one embryo, you won't be seeing any pattern. So going back to the point that karyotypes should still be considered in context of the patient's reproductive history, if there's only one embryo and it's chromosome 13, for example, and there's a family member with trisomy 13 or had a baby with trisomy 13, a patient should probably have karyotyping, even though it doesn't meet the criteria that we propose. Similarly, if you have recurring segmental aneuploidies, that's very uh, that's a very strong indicator that the patient or the partner has a translocation. Still, we would want to consider the, the reproductive history in determining if karyotypes need to be ordered. And again, that was one of the concerns that the reviewers had was, you know, what about the reproductive history? And so I just wanted to comment as well that you know, the, the publication does come from a commercial laboratory that receives requests to run PGTA and reproductive history wasn't always provided for the cases included in the study. I've had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Alyssa Snyder about translocation flagging from PGTA results. Thank you so much for taking time out to be on the show. Thanks so much for having me, Jeff. It's been a pleasure. I am Jeffrey Hayes, and this is ASRM Today. This concludes this episode of ASRM Today. For show notes, author information, and discussions, go to asrmtoday.org. This material is copyrighted by the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and may not be reproduced or used without express consent from ASRM. ASRM Today Series podcasts are supported in part by the ASRM Corporate Member Council. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ASRM and its affiliates. These are provided as a source of general information and are not a substitute for consultation with a physician.